Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and good afternoon. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland here in our new home, 1317 Euclid Avenue, where we continue to be devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today's Thursday, October 5th. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here, and I am pleased to welcome Laura Meckler. She's a journalist for the Washington Post, and she's author of the new book, Dreamtown, Shaker Heights, and the Quest for Racial Equity. In 1955, the integration of a predominantly white Cleveland suburb began with one black family and an unexpected response from that family's new neighbors. While some had responded with the racism and bigotry common to that era, many welcomed the new family and stood with them. Together, they created an intentionally desegregated, integrated community in Ludlow on the west side of Shaker Heights. These events set the course for the community and the Shaker Heights School District became a beacon for integration and academic excellence. But it was not without its challenges. In Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equity, Laura Meckler explores the district's history as a case study of what's possible and how difficult the work of racial equity can be. Meckler is a national education reporter for the Washington Post. She previously worked at the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press. She was part of the team that won the George Polk Award for Justice Reporting for a 2020 series on the life of George Floyd. Before moving to DC, Laura covered state government in Columbus, Ohio. She got her start in professional journalism at the repository in Canton. She is also an alum of the Shaker Heights School District. Joining us today on stage is Russ Mitchell. He's anchor and managing editor at WKYC News and he will moderate our forum today. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try and work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Laura Mackler and Russ Mitchell. Thank you. Laura, welcome home. I think you brought all of Shaker Heights with you today. Uh, I think. A nice chunk, we, the, the best of the best. There you go. And does Dan get a cut of the book as well? Or, I, no? I think he might have. Okay, might have that was a yeah, great sales that job. Was, doesn't get much better. But it is a great book. In fact, you were getting amazing ink, amazing press for this book. Do you mind if I read a couple things here? Uh, if you good ones, absolutely. I, I didn't go think right I didn't think you would mind. This is from Andy Berlowitz, New York Times best-selling author. Anyone interested in race in America will find Laura Meckler's brilliant book, Dreamtown, Impossible to Put Down. This is from Thomas Etzel, New York Times political columnist. Dreamtown is critical reading, not only for those dealing with the politics of race, but for everyone struggling to maintain a commitment to fairness, equality, and the achievement of the American dream in one of the most device moments in our history. In this next blurb, you may recognize the, the author of this. This book, through rigorous reporting and stunning historical sweep, provides a vital step toward finding our path forward. That from Pulitzer Prize winning author and Shaker Heights graduate, Wesley Lowry. 
So very nice. Why do you think this book is resonating with so many people? You know, I think that this is a story that we all sort of struggle with, you know, as, as parents, as students, as people living in a diverse nation and in many of us in diverse communities with, you know, how do we line up our actions with our ideals and what does it look like when you try? I think, and I think that's part of it. Sort of that—that's the big picture. I think also part of it is that there's a lot of debates in education right now around the questions of racial equity, and you know, this is a look at what it looks like when you're actually in the in the trenches working on it. And I also just think it's sort of like a great tale. I mean, the story of Shaker is, is you know, it's from the beginning of the with the Van Swearingen brothers, two of the oddest people you're ever going to read about, <laughs> and all the way through to the um, Ludlow pioneers and to the people who have just been constantly working mm -hmm. these issues, the people who I think that I chose to highlight are just really interesting people. And so it was really, and that was actually an important part of me when I thought about how to write this book, was I wanted it to be you know, driven by stories of real people, and I think those people are just really interesting, have lived interesting lives. Yeah, as was pointed out, you grew up in, in Shaker Heights, Shaker Heights graduate, in fact, your, your, your parents are here. I, I think as, as kids, when we grow up, we, we, we don't know when things are not normal, when, when what we're living is not the norm. A, at what point growing up did you realize that Shaker Heights was, in fact, was a unique community? You know, I feel like I, in some ways, always knew it. I always felt this sort of special glow as being part of Shaker. I, I don't know when I learned it, um, but I feel like from a young age, I understood that Shaker was doing something special regarding race. So I grew up in the, you know, went to school in the 70s and the 80s, and this was really, when I think about it, I mean, the, the Shaker School's busing plan, the first one in 1970, really began just a few years before I started kindergarten. So all of this was new for the community, and there was an enormous sense of pride inside Shaker that we were doing something that other people weren't. You know, this is at a time when other communities across the country are fighting forced busing with all they had, and, you know, Shaker was embracing it. And um, I was also very much shaped by my next door neighbors, the Lardies, who were remarkable people, a multiracial family, um, and my best friend, who uh, a daughter of that family. And so I always sort of, and I also knew about the housing program as a pretty young kid too, which I didn't really understand all the complexities of it at the time. I, I sort of saw the whole thing with some rose-colored glasses, I think it's fair to say. But I did have a sense that this was a place, in fact, I would have told you probably at the time, well, you know, Maybe the rest of the country, you've got problems with race, but you know we've got this figured out, which you know turned out to not to be quite the case. Yeah, it brings me to my next question, and we talked about this, the title Dreamtown. Is that more of a statement, more of a hope? How would you characterize it? I characterize it more of, more of a verb. You know, it's less that this is a dream town, meaning this is a perfect place, everything has come true. It's but more of a place where there is dreaming, where people are dreaming for mm -hmm. something better. And that, so that's sort of how I think of it. I mean, the title stems from um, sort of the twin dreams, one articulated by Cosmo Magazine in 1963 when they put Shaker on the cover um, and described it as this is the story of an American dream town come true. And they were talking about suburban opulence and beautiful homes, and all of that is true about Shaker Heights. And it, also the MLK dream, which was spoken in, in the Capitol just a few months after that Cosmo article talking about a different sort of dream of, of um, coming together across race. And that um, is also a dream that Shaker's trying to make come true. And you're, you have talked to folks, obviously, across the country. You've been reporting on Shaker Heights for, for quite some time in your time in the Washington Post as well. How unique 
is Shaker Heights when it comes to the country as a whole? You know, uh, it's not unique in the sense that it's not the only one. There are other places that are trying this too. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, I would say probably dozens of communities that are, have very similar kinds of stories. But of course, dozens is not much when you think about the large country that we live in. You know, in most of the country, um, people have not, are not really thinking about integration, certainly in the context of schools. It's not really even a goal. And in fact, I think most of us really sort ourselves into communities and certainly into school districts very much by wealth. You, people move into the wealthiest neighborhood with the best schools that they can afford, and people who don't have choices live where they live, and, cause, and those are, like, in many cases, very poor districts that have concentrated need, and we end up with this real bifurcated system. So uh, in that sense, I think Shaker is pretty unusual in that it has both racial and economic diversity. Uh, you go into much detail in the book to, to give us the history of Shaker Heights, and you talked about the Van Swearingen's a, a moment ago. The Shaker Heights did not begin <laughs> the no. way it is right now. Give us a refresher course of who these guys were and, and how, I guess, ironic it is that their right. original goal turned out to become something totally different. They're buried at Lakeview Cemetery, where I'm sure they're constantly spinning in their graves when they see what <laughs> became of Shaker Heights. Um, it was founded in a, as a um, elite, suburb for wealthy Clevelanders who were escaping the city, should be said at a time when the black population was rising in the city of Cleveland. They, um, it was at the time, you know, Shaker Heights was the sticks. You know, this was like out in the country. It was a new development. And they had high standards for architecture, high standards for exactly what this community would be like. Um, restrictions on how you could build houses, who you could hire as an architect the limitations on business and industry, which is, you know, there's no industry and very little business in, this, in the city, um, you know, much to the uh, dismay of the tax base. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, and they also were overtly racist. They had covenants on the deeds. Now, unlike some communities, it did not specify who was not allowed in, but it required permission from the Van Swearingen Company in order to sell your home. And they did not grant permission to black buyers. It was just that simple. So. Um, there were a few that tried to get in early and un, you know, unsuccessfully, ultimately. So they, they very much were, it was, they described it as a place for the right sort of people, and everyone knew what that meant. Uh, again, you've got uh, heroes and, and villains, if you will, in the book. When I look back at some of the folks who were responsible for making that turn and helping to make Shaker what it is today, I think of the Masons and other people who helped integrate the community. Uh, how tough was it for them at their time, in that time, to do what they were doing? What, what did it require on their part? What did it require on the part of the rest of the community? Yeah, it was, I mean, for families like the Masons, who are featured in the book, um, Ted and Beverly Mason, who were really extraordinary people, that it, getting, buying into, moving into the Shaker Heights community, and in fact, they are, their house was in the city of Cleveland, Shaker Heights School District, but you know, even that was, enormously difficult because all of the systems that were in place were meant to keep them out. I mean, there were enormous amounts of layers and layers of um, systemic racism that was set up in order to keep white neighborhoods white. So you couldn't get a bank loan, you couldn't, a realtor wouldn't show you the property. The only way they were able to get that property was actually through a trade. Um, 
Ted Mason owned a, some parcels of land in the city, and he had a friend, a white friend, who owned this lot in the Shaker Heights School District, and they traded. But there were all sorts of um, tricks they used to get the plans approved. They, they had them submitted by white architects just to make sure that they didn't raise any eyebrows. So it was very difficult to get into the community. And in fact, um, I mean, Dan talked about the embrace of uh, between black and white families in Ludlow, which ultimately was the story. But the very first reaction when word came down that these houses were being built, one for the Masons and another for the Pegs, um, was a meeting at Ludlow Elementary School of concerned citizens, like, what are we going to do about this? You know, and the same conversations of, well, maybe we can enforce restrictions, maybe we can do this, we want to keep out undesirables, was the phrase that was used. And in fact, though, there was, though, the seeds of what would to become after that meeting when a few um, white families, as they were, of course, all the families were white, as they were leaving the meeting, they were very unsettled by what they heard. And they said, like, this, we, 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 need to, we need to think about this and try another way. And that was the, that was the seeds of, it, of what became. But the initial response at Ludlow was the same as it was everywhere else, white flight. I mean, mm -hmm. the, as soon as the neighborhood opened up to black buyers, because there was so much pent-up demand from the black middle class, because almost no suburban um, housing available. So as soon as the neighborhood opened, there was just a rush. And there were the real estate industry you know, panicking the white residents into selling. And it, and it started to work. I mean, the neighborhood started to change. And then it was people stepped in to, to, to try something new. I know you're friends with uh, Paul Mason, the, yes. the Mason's uh, son, who I know has done an event for you here in Cleveland. He, he, loves, he loves this book. How does that make you feel that someone like that really thinks highly of what you've written here? Well, I mean, obviously, it's, it's thrilling for me. I mean, Paul Mason is, was also somebody who really helped me as I was going through this book and, and working and reporting it and working through issues. He was someone who I really actually leaned on and asked for his judgment and his advice as I went along. So, um, so I'm certainly happy that he <laughs> likes the final, like the final product. As the school district and community has dealt with uh, racial and economic disparities over the years, there have been some things that have worked better than others. Uh, when you look at the history there, what has worked well and what required some work? Are we talking about housing or schools? Or I'm both? sorry, we're talking about schools right now. Okay. Um, so it's hard to, how do we define what has worked? So like, what, what are we, what is our metric of success, you know? And, and that's part of the challenge here because, you know, what's underlying all of this is a persistent racial achievement gap. And it, in, on one level, nothing has, quote, worked because it is still there and um, ever present. So, but yet there have been a variety of initiatives that I think are, really great and that have, I think, certainly contributed to making the school district a better place. And I mean, among those things that come to mind are you know, the Student Group on Race Relations, which is celebrating its 40th year this year, has been leading conversations about race for, for a long time. And I mean, with all the way from kids to adults. I mean, they sometimes lead conversations with teachers even, which is a pretty remarkable thing. So um, that's, I think, it, so has it worked? I mean, can we show a metric of success? I don't know, but I think that anybody who's encountered them would say that this is a really positive force. You know, that long time ago, um, there was a tutoring, tutoring center established. You can get free tutoring if you're a student at Shaker Heights. And I, I think that that's really great. You know, I wish that, that my kids had access to free tutoring in DC. It is not something everybody has. Um, 
that I think has been successful. I mean, the Max Scholars Program, I think, is, is a great program that encourages and um, achievement of separate or organizations for boys and girls in the high school. And actually, and down, um, down to the um, upper elementary school, actually, there are Max Scholars programs. And they've done amazing work in terms of role models for achievement and celebrating black achievement and black excellence. So I think that those, have, they're, they're just, those are just three to name a few. So I think there have been a lot of great efforts tried, but has it worked? I can't, I can't like stand here and say like, yeah, it's worked, it's great, yeah. because it hasn't. Yeah, it was sticking with education in your research. What were the greatest economic and educational disparities that you found from a racial standpoint? Well, I mean, the economic disparities are just, you know, you see the pure numbers. I mean, so in 1989, Median, which is the first year I could find census data for that included race and um, race and income both uh, crossed together. In 1989, median black income in Shaker Heights was 65% of median white income, so it was you know significantly lower. In nine, by 2020, 30 years later, it was 35%. So. Um, white median income slow, slowly went up and black median income went down. Um, so, I mean, that's the economic divide right there. So you have this, you know, very, and when you have, and this is true everywhere, when you have kids who don't have as many advantages, they come to school with more challenges. I mean, it's just, it's just the reality. You know, some parents have the money and the resources to send their kids to science camp over the summer, and some kids are working jobs during the summer. You know, and, the, and those are two different experiences. I want to ask you about something you, you wrote in your book. You quote a, a paper that was written by a former Shaker student back in the mid-60s. This uh, former student was at Harvard. He wrote about Shaker schools. One of his conclusions was, quote, Shaker may be guilty of practicing discriminatory education behind the facade of a desegregated structure. This was in the 1960s he wrote this. In, in 2023, how does that statement hold up? Well, first, let me just say that this paper was in 1969 is when this was written, was when I found this paper in the district archives in the back of a box on other things, my mouth literally dropped open. <laughs> I could not believe that these issues had, were diagnosed so presciently by a college student at that, that early on. In fact, he talked about the system that was all about the level system, okay, um, and the tracking system that was in place. And he, that's what the paper, and also the counseling system as well. And what he, he said that it wasn't designed to be racist, but it had evolved. So he's talking about having evolved to that point in 1969. Right. So that's more than 50 years ago. That's just, was, is stunning to me. Um, I mean, I think the same, it was just incredibly prescient, the same issues have uh, existed ever since. So now, of course, the, um, as I guess we have a big shaker crowd here, so people know that there's a big uh, detracking, deleveling system that was instituted three years ago. So that has, but that is a major change for the district, which had for the 50 years prior defended, vigorously defended the tracking and leveling system in place under criticism from others that was more public than a college paper. So when you hear that statement, it's, I hear it's, that it's it's heartbreaking to yeah. me. To be honest, mm -hmm. it's absolutely heartbreaking to me when I read that. That that this is like they knew. I mean, this this was 
a paper that was in the district archives. This paper was handed to someone at the district. They were told about these things. They, and it, it, it literally breaks my heart that, that there were not people who could have somehow said at, at that time when things were, it was, there were not the same racial achievement gaps that we see today. There was just a much smaller black population for that matter that they didn't say, wait a second, this is a, a, a ringing alarm bell. Let's like really get, on to get in front of this. You know, and I know that there were people who tried in various ways, tried various things over the years. So I don't want to pretend like this was ignored because it wasn't. But still, seeing that, yeah, it absolutely resonated. And I, in many ways, that paper could have been written, you know, very recently. You also write in the book that uh, Shaker Heights has defied the odds, not once or twice, but over and over again. How optimistic are you that that will continue? You know, I, I end up, I, I'm, I am optimistic because I think in general the community has a lot of commitment to addressing these, these issues. And I think the reason people, a lot of people have asked me, um, you know, why is this, what's different about Shaker and why is it that, that they're, what's, what, what's different about the approach? And I think that a lot of what's different is that part, mostly starting with the housing program and then the schools program, all this embrace of diversity and integration has tended to draw people who want that. So there, you have a base of support for a lot of these things. So I do think that there will be continued work in this direction um, that is supported. It's not universal. There, there is a diversity of opinions on a lot of things, especially the detracking. The um, but I am at core optimistic. And you know, as I was writing this book, I did struggle with the question of whether, I, like, what my ultimate conclusion would be. Because you can take these same facts and say, hey, this is ultimately a failure because when you look at the numbers and of, of the achievement, it's so it's so disparate. It doesn't matter what you look at: grades, test scores, attendance, anything, you know. And it, it, you could come away pretty pessimistic. But ultimately, I I end the book and I am personally much more optimistic and hopeful because, you know, in a as we said, in like a country full of places that don't even care or aren't even trying, this is a place that is and still is. And I don't see that commitment waning. I read those great reviews there. I wonder, you, you pointed out, you're, you're hearing from folks now. The book has been out for a month or, or, or so now. Yeah. Have you heard from anybody from Shaker or, or, or who has said to you, you know what, Laura, I love your book, but didn't like this part. Anything like that. Didn't agree with this part. I don't know. I mean, all the feedback has been universally positive. No. Um, there has, it, um. I gave her a high hanging curve there, and she swung. So I knew that was happening. Um, I actually have gotten a lot of wonderful yeah. notes from yes. people, um, but um, yeah, I mean, there are some people who who have a have a but, you know. Um, I'm trying. I'm sure you're going to ask me what those things are. That's coming yes, next. Yes. yes. Um, right. And you know, I've been on your side. Um, and um, I, you know, some of it's around the like the detracking people mm -hmm. who are really upset about that, mm -hmm. and they feel like it's really undermining the excellence of the Shaker School. So I hear from people who feel that way. Um, some of it is I'm just trying to think um, what else I've specifically mm -hmm. heard about. Um, well, you mentioned the tracking last time right. we talked. Is that is that a, a, a when people is that a vigorous debate when when those subjects come up, or is it? 
Is it civil, or how, 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 how much do people disagree with you, I guess, on that, when you hear people who disagree? Well, I mean, it's not about disagreeing with me, because I don't really take a, a mm. position one right. way or another. I think it's too early to say mm. um, whether it will, will ultimately be successful or not. Um, I, um, but um, people are passionate about this sure. issue in both directions, I think it's very fair to say. Um, there is a lot of, and, and when I, and I, do, I mean, there have been a couple parents who have repeatedly written to me, mm -hmm. so much so that I said, perhaps you would like to consider directing these comments to the administration of the Shaker Heights School District. <laughs> so you're welcome. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, because it's not, I mean, I'm like, I'm not, you know, this is not, my, I'm not running sure. this here. Right. I'm, um, so, Just the messenger. Right. Exactly. Right. exactly. Right. Um, so yes, but there is definite right. passion. And I think the reason there's passion is because people really care. People don't get upset about things they don't care about, you know, and there's commitment mm -hmm. in caring about this. And I think that, so if you, you look at it at the core, that's where, where it comes from. As I said, half of Shaker Heights is here, but I know there are people from other school districts as well. As you travel around the country and you tell this story, what do you think other districts can learn from Shaker Heights? Well, I think they, one thing to take away is that, you know, this is really, hard work and it requires constant commitment. This is not, I've said I've said this before, but it's like not like a, you know, a 30 day juice fast where like you do it and then here's the answer, you're done. I mean, this is something that requires commitment. So you, that's that's the first thing that, that you can learn. Um, I think that, um, I think one of the important lessons of this is if we're talking, I mean, a lot of this is about, again, back to these kind of two dreams idea, this idea of like, so when we think about suburban opulence, we can also think about like excellent schools. Like that's something that also has been, and I knew that growing up too. I mean, I thought, I was under the impression that the Shaker schools were literally the best in the nation, that someone had ranked them that way. I don't know if that is actually true or not, or if it was ever, but it was something people said. So it was, but they were definitely excellent. There was no question about that. And I mean, and I can testify it to myself. I got an incredible education in Shaker. And um, I mean, in many ways, it was more challenging than college was, and I was so prepared for that. Um, you know, it allowed me to really slack off in college, which was and work on the college paper, which is, was very helpful. Um, but um, the 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 it's the challenge of maintaining that and keeping everybody in the boat, and and also addressing issues of racial equity and having making sure you're you're um, helping people rise, Th those are, while also keeping the people who are already high achieving. Like, I think it's really important. This sort of doesn't work unless everybody is in the boat together. And I think that that's something that it's, that's really hard to do. And that's why there are so few communities that are doing it. Um, but um, I think that's, for, for communities that are facing that, that's, I think, something worth ruminating on. And the book gives a variety of ways to think about that. Um, about how you serve both of those imperatives. There are a number of students here from, from Shaker Heights uh, and beyond, and please don't pay attention to what she said earlier about slacking off or anything like that. Well, that was in college. Sure. No, yeah, I had yeah. to work really hard in high yeah, school. Don't, don't even, don't even do, do that. <laughs> but don't, no, don't pay attention. Uh, I guess, again, Unless you're working for the college paper, then that's okay. <laughs> I, I guess as I was saying earlier, we, growing up, we're, we're usually not aware that the situation we're in at that moment is unique or there's something really special about it. Yeah. It, what would you say to these students about Shaker Heights and, and your experiences and what, what they should know right now about where they are? Wow, well, 
I think that they should know that this is not the way the rest of the world really looks to for and that and appreciate the the opportunities that they have to be part of this community. I mean, I definitely think that that's true. Um, and take advantage of all of the things that Shaker has to offer because there is a lot that they that is available and not every kid has those opportunities. So I would say really take advantage of those things. Um, and you know, it's like kind of cool to be part of a place that's like grappling with this stuff. So if that interests you, which maybe it does if you're here in this room, then you know, this is an opportunity for you to be part of the conversation too and to think about how do you tackle these questions? And um, which is kind of, a, kind of a neat thing to kind of both like look at it, study it, and try to work on it while you're part of it. Uh, I posed this question to you last time we spoke and you said you've thought about it since then. Okay. When, when you think of Shaker Heights, your experience is there, you, you clearly love the community. What's the one word, what's the one sentence that, that comes to mind for you? Yeah, so you, you know, you asked me this, it was, a, you know, unexpected that time when we, when you interviewed me for the piece you did um, for the station, and the first word that came to me was home, and that really is true. Like, for me, I very much feel connected to this community. Um, you know, my parents live here, I come back, I have come back here at least a couple times a year my entire life, um, and it was a real joy for me, frankly, working on this book to have reason to come back so often. My, my husband and my kids and I moved here for um, the better part of two summers while we, um, which was definitely something that my uh, folks thought was a, a good idea, uh, mostly for their grandchildren. But, um, and it, it, was, it was wonderful being part of this. I, I think though that I, one, I think a strength that I um, bring to this, if it can be um, perhaps slightly unmodest to say is that I have both sort of the passion and the, the love for this community is real, but I do have some detachment as well, you know, um, as a journalist. And that is how I approach this work, is as a journalist, is to wanting to, you know, look at it um, fairly and objectively and, um, this, and, and see what, what I could find. Can we give a shout out to your parents? Yes, you absolutely. Wave. Hi. Laura's <laughs> parents are here. <laughs> We're going to go to Q&A in, in just a moment, but, but, but a question to you, because you've written about this, as I said, extensively in the Washington Post and now the book. In your mind, why was it important for you, for you, to tell this story? The book-length story? The book-length story. Clearly, this is something you've, you've written about, you've written right. about before with the Post, ex extensive articles with the Post, right. and now the book. Right. Why was this story important to you to tell? Right. Well... Obviously, I care about this community, so it, so I, I think it's and I think it's endlessly fascinating. So I thought it was just a story that other people would also find interesting. The um, but why it was important, you know, when I first started thinking about reporting on Shaker, which, you know, I, I this is not like I got out of became a journalist and then said, hey, this is my first story idea. I mean, right. it was you know a long time into my career before I started this, and I was it was in um, in fact I had just started a new beat in. 2013 covering changing American demographics and I was thinking a lot about race and I and actually the um, at that time I was just sort of poking around thinking about Shaker and I saw something about Greg Hutchings having been hired as the new superintendent and he was taking on racial equity I mean that was sort of the message from him and I thought 
huh, that's interesting. And I started like looking at some numbers and I thought, well, this is sort of an interesting contradiction, this idea of this community, which like I said, my experience growing up was this very positive, warm feeling about how the, the community's relationship with race. And now it's like, oh, well, what's happening here? Like, why is this achievement gap so pronounced? It was not something I had given a lot of thought about. So I thought that core contradiction was, that was the, that was the heart of the, of the reporting, you know, in the beginning. Um, and then it evolved over time um, into what became a long story for the Washington Post. Uh, I, I told uh, Dr. Glasner, superintendent who's here, that uh, his mom came to one of my events in DC and asked why the Washington Post was interested in writing 6,000 words about Shaker Heights. Um, uh, and luckily they were. Um, I like to think that the piece compelled itself into the, into the paper at that length. And um, then why the book? Because it's basically for two reasons. I mean, one, the history of Shaker is truly fascinating. I mean, I think for anyway, the, the, the way that this community fought back in the beginning against the banking and the real estate industry at that time, which was intent on segregation and then resegregation. I mean, they were committed to it and they worked hard. And the fact that people worked hard in the other direction is just a really interesting story. And so you sort of have that piece and then you have the modern piece with this like really difficult questions. and. Um, and that I think are that a lot of people in this country are interested in. So, and I thought, you know, if nothing else, if like nobody else reads this beyond, you know, my family, and you know, <laughs> if this doesn't, you know, get reviewed or nobody, you know, fresh air never calls, which happily they did, I at least can say that like I've contributed something to the place that I grew up and the place that shaped me. I contributed something to a greater understanding of who we are, and I, I do feel like I've done that. Well, a lot of people appreciate it. It's a fantastic answer. It is uh, halftime, as they say here at the City Club. We're about to begin the audience Q&A, so the microphones are, are up, so please have your question, and you'll go to the microphone, as Dan said. You know, be kind. We have a lot of questions we want to get in this afternoon. Once again, I'm Russ Mitchell, Managing Editor at WKYC and moderator for today's conversation. We are joined by journalist Laura Meckler, the author of Dreamtown, Shaker Heights, and the Quest for Racial Equity. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you would like to text a question for our speaker, please text it to 330-541 5794. That is 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please, right here on my right. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, so glad to hear this important story. My name is Merle Johnson. I'm a member of the State Board of Education. And a lot of people in this room probably don't know that K-12 education has now been placed in the hands of the governor. Um, that's the same governor that kicked two people off of the State Board of Education because they did not vote to rescind a resolution that supported equity and condemned hate. So my concern is in this kind of environment, how does, how does Shaker Heights continue to push equity and, and condemn hate in this kind of toxic environment that we are now existing in? Well, I would, I would say that 
education is very much a local, locally run matter. And while the State Board of Education has its role, most of these decisions are actually made at the local level. I mean, that's the direct response to you, but there are these culture war stuff is raging in this country. There's no question about it. Um, and Ohio is part of that. So, um, you know, it does certainly create an atmosphere where it makes, perhaps make, makes it more challenging. But Shaker Heights, if we're literally, to answer your literal question, is a very liberal community. So um, I think those tensions are far less severe than what you find in other places. And, you know, in my other reporting, I see it all over the place where you have really vitriolic school board meetings where people are where their people are really at each other's throat over these questions and I, I really don't see that here. So um, I think in many ways it, it's much, much easier than it's gonna than it is in a place like that. From your reporting, how, how I guess how common is it for a state board of education to be so involved in local districts or, or well, How would you it? I don't know if that, you know, it, it depends. I mean, some state boards of education get, or state education departments, every state right. has a little different, you know, can, can get real involved in Florida. they not allowing the AP African American Studies course to be taught, you right. know, and they can do that. So, you know, they're using their, like in Florida, it's fair to say, they're pulling every lever they've got. Um, the, um, and in other cases, you see more of a hands-off. Next question. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, Kathleen Saline, former assistant principal at Shaker Heights High School. When I came to Shaker, there was a piece of data that people don't talk about very much. Shaker Heights had the highest percentage of African-American students per capita scoring accelerated and advanced in the state of Ohio. So often, we look at comparative data, but we forget to look at the data that analyzes success of students. Now we can quibble about the state test, but clearly Shaker Heights students were scoring accelerated advanced at a much higher level. Also, Shaker Heights students, as you pointed out, they're very, very proud to be from Shaker. And the heartbreak that I experienced was the job, the position that was stolen from James Reed III. Uh, my boss and my mentor, James, he was a part of the great experiment. His family moved here so that he and his brothers could attend Shaker Heights. He attended Shaker Heights, went on to become our principal. And when that job was down to two finalists, James and a man that Central Office knew, had been fired from the job he held. James Reed III did not become the principal of Shaker Heights High School. He went on to finish an illustrious career. And the reason I mention him today, you mentioned him in your book, and I hope that there will be more about his story. Because the things he did, he got teachers talking about different grading systems. He tried to work with counselors, not just having a segment of white high income students, but actually being across. He began a lot of initiatives. So I hope that your future writing about Shaker includes the story of James Reed III, a great Shaker Heights graduate who really did a lot for our kids. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before I answer this, I'll just say, since I see, I would encourage the students who are here to come up with a question and, and, and or share your thoughts. I would love to hear that. Um, 
Uh, I do mention James Reed in the book. Uh, he was the favorite of the teacher, of the teaching staff. Um, he was not chosen to be the principal. Um, a man named Jonathan Keenly was, who turned out to be um, not, I'll just put it mildly, not particularly successful. Um, in fact, kind of a disaster, I guess I could say. Um, at least, certainly, that's, I think, fair to say when you read the book. Um, he, uh, so I don't know that that was a great choice, to be honest, uh, on the part of the previous superintendent, it should be noted. This is not the people who chose, who made that decision are no longer in charge. I'm sure James Reed is doing well in his life right now, but um, that, was, that was one of the things that caused tension between the high school faculty and Greg Hutchings. There's a chapter about this in the book, the prior superintendent who had a very equity-minded agenda, but really clashed with the teaching staff, and this was one of the things that drove it. I too would uh, echo that statement in terms of asking some students to ask a question. The Shakerite in Shaker Heights is someone who was on the high school newspaper a few years ago in another place. Uh, the Shakerite has been noted for years for being one of the greatest high school newspapers in the country. Were you on the Shakerite? Uh, just a little bit. I okay. didn't really find journalism until college, but um, Shakerite's terrific. In fact, I mean, one of my big worries about our country right now is the demise of local media. Um, you know, the Sun Press used to cover Shaker Heights, you know, um, enthusiastically, aggressively. There was a lot of coverage. I relied on a lot of it for in telling the history. And today, you know, those reporters are so strapped. They have just huge swaths of territory. I talked to someone from the Sun Press who says he covers nine suburbs. I mean, I don't know how you do that. Um, so the Shaker Right actually sometimes is the best source of information about what's going on. They do a terrific job. Amazing high school newspaper, certainly. Question on my right, good afternoon. Thank you for the beautiful book and the rich, deep history of the community many of us live in and love. I, just a quick question about comparative communities. I was really struck in thinking about the way um, Shaker detract in 2020, which was the year after my daughter had left, um, so I didn't really know what was going on. But you said that Evanston, Illinois, had detract with uh, a little differently, and I was just interested in knowing a little bit more about the comparative way of, of doing this and other interesting communities around the country that are trying also to do what we're trying to do. Yeah. So I don't um, remember the details of Evanston off the top of my head, but I can speak generally to some other approaches that are used on detracking, which in general, just to, for those who may not know, detracking is combining kids of different ability levels or say different perceived ability levels into the same classes as opposed to leveling. And before this started, Shaker had a, I think a very uh, aggressive tracking effort where kids were separated into different classrooms starting in fifth grade. So really, you know, kids who were 10 years old, they were putting them on a course. And frankly, once you get on that track, even though it's, you technically can change, as a practical matter, it just didn't really happen. So that's the backdrop. How some other class, other communities have done it, some of them have, have phased it in. Some of them have um, done it for some subjects and not for others. Um, some of them have programs like a um, earned honors program where kids are together in the same classroom, but um, you can get honors credit, but you have to um, you have to do extra work essentially to do it to get it. But you still have kids in the same classroom. Some places um, have done it like Shaker, where they tried to move everybody up to the honors level, 
Um, and then there's like the state of California, which has a math curriculum proposal where they want to slow math down for everybody because they think kids are moving too quickly through math. So, so there, are a, there are a range of ideas about how, about how to do it. Um, but, uh, um, but they all kind of have the same general, general goal. Question to my left, good afternoon. Hello, my name is Belise Bradley, and I myself am a, am a member of some of the clubs you mentioned, Max Sister Scholars, SCORE. But my question for you is what inspired you to, oh, sorry, I'm a junior at Shaker Heights High School. Thought <laughs> I should mention that. <laughs> sorry, I'm moving a little fast, but um, <laughs> no my question. My question for you is what inspired you to pick this topic? Obviously growing up in Shaker Heights, you'd be compelled to look at your surroundings and see what's happening around you, but obviously being a white woman, it didn't directly affect you. So what compelled you to um, tackle this issue in your book? Yeah, so the real question on that is um, what really compelled me to the article first, because that's what preceded the book. So when I started, um, covering demographics. I mean, I was very, very interested in questions of race in America, even though it doesn't affect me personally um, in the same way for sure, although I would argue it affects all of us in different ways. Um, uh, I think that, I think questions of race and racism are sort of the founding sin of this country and are with us in many different ways, affect American life um, just in, uh, countless arenas, and I think is sort of one of the central questions that our country has always faced and faces today of how to address these questions of race and diversity um, and racism in, the, in, in our communities. So like, I'm very personally interested in that. Um, so that's what compelled me to start looking at this in the first place and that, and I write about this in many other contexts as well and other communities of what's going on. And, and in fact, it's what drew me to the education um, uh, be the, the job I have today was because I felt like the schools are a very good way, I mean, Shaker Heights aside, um, of writing about um, questions of race, because that, and which is something that, like I said, really interests me. I mean, my own personal experience with this has really also been a journey, and in reporting this, I have, it's become all the more clear to me, you know, the privilege that I have had at. Um, being a white person going through the Shaker schools and, and everywhere else I've walked for that matter. But, um, and I write about this in the book, this idea that, you know, I was in advanced classes and sometimes I struggled in those classes, but I never had to worry that somebody would, would look at me and say, you know, well, she doesn't belong here. Because of course I belong there, where else would I be? This is the book opens with, with uh, Hubert McIntyre, who's here, who one of the wiser people who I met in the course of this journey, who, who keyed in on that question of belonging and it became really a theme that goes through the book. And I didn't have to face that. And I've talked to so many black alumni and students who do face that sense of loneliness and questioning of whether they, and feeling of do they belong in this space. And um, you know, really coming to terms with the fact that that was not something I ever had to, and I, you know, believe me, I had plenty of insecurities, but um, I never had to, never had to think about that one, and that was, you know, an unspoken gift. So, um, so I did try to think that through as I wrote about, it, but it was also, I, I'll just add, I, this wasn't exactly the question, but. You know, I was also just very conscious as I was reporting this about the fact that I am a white person writing about race. 
and that there are pitfalls that come with that. And I was tried to do what I could to mitigate against my own blind spots and my own, um, you know, biases that we all have. You know, and Paul Mason would be was part of that. Other friends of um, journalists and sure. others of um, people of color who I asked to read the book beforehand, and also just doing a mm -hmm. lot of work to um, try to get a lot of different perspectives in into this. But but you know, Shaker Heights has been written about a lot, and it will continue to be. And you know, there's room for lots of lots of takes mm -hmm. on this community. Next question, yes, sir. Hi, thank you. Mark Chupp, Social Justice Institute at Case Western Reserve University and a proud parent of two graduates of Cleveland Heights public school system. Um, similar trends, the work is not done, as you indicate, and I wanna, I wanna point to two demographics and how you would respond to those. The one is um, the high number of white uh, families whose students are opting out and sending their kids to private school. So in Shaker, maybe nearly 50%, and other uh, first suburbs, even higher. So white families opting out of sending their kids to public education, and then the other demographic trend which is happening in the suburbs, first suburbs, is middle-class black families moving out of the suburbs. And so you have this different demographic related to race and socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. Is that a threat to Dreamtown? And if it is, what, what have you learned are the, the current challenges and what we need to do to address those threats to because public support for education goes down when those demographics take place. Yes. Well, first of all, I'd like to say someone, that there's someone from Cleveland Heights here, so we do have diversity in, in the room. Um, the, um, yes, I think that they are threats to what, what Shaker has historically tried to be and is still, and is still still is and wants to be, which is a racially and economically diverse place. So um, there are sort of two separate things going on with those two um, trends that you mentioned. So I'll take the second one first, black middle class families leaving Shaker. Um, I think that that's driven by a few things. You know, it's partly is that there are more suburbs available than there used to be, so there's a lot more choice. Um, and I also think that there are black families who um, don't like the racial dynamic in the Shaker schools and the achievement gap situation and the loneliness and advanced classes and all sorts of other things and that that can be a turnoff and I think that it's important for the schools to think about those questions and make sure that they're addressing them because I think having you know um, middle class and higher income black families is really um, important as part of the mix of the community to have because if it's a, um, it's, the community has become, part of the reason why the median income has gone down is because these families leaving. Another part of the reason is because parts of Shaker have become more accessible to lower income people for a variety of reasons, dealing with the housing crisis, at foreclosures, and, um, and other economic factors. So you have, um, have that going on, so it, it, in order to have Racial and economic balance, having those families in, in, in the boat would be very helpful. Um, you know, Shaker's always had a good chunk of white, uh, um, wealthier families going to private schools. Um, I, um, and as have other suburbs as well. And it, that percentage, I believe, has stayed relatively stable over time, although it is something that I 
am kind of watching and have watched. I, I guess I'm going to continue to watch. I, I don't know how much, <laughs> how much longer do you guys want to take my questions over there. Um, <laughs> the, um, but I do, I do pay, I am paying attention to that. And you know, the most recent, especially with the detracking and the most recent enrollment reports are you know, fairly steady. There is a losing population due to demographic reasons. At least that's what it appears to be. But I think it's something that really needs to be watched in a very careful way because it does matter. Because um, if it doesn't, you know, if Shaker is not seen as a destination community for really high achieving white and black families, which is basically what you're asking about, then that's going to be a problem. Got about five minutes left. Going to try to get a couple of quick questions and answers in. Yes, your question. Good afternoon. My question is similar. On January 13 of this year, the New York Times posted an article on their website entitled, Could Black Flight Change a Model of Integration by Deborah Kamen, who grew up in Shaker and went to Shaker schools. And specifically, uh, it, uh, it said that black families were um, dissatisfied with Shaker schools because of the growing disparity between black and white students, but also with recent efforts by the district that you mentioned earlier to combat systemic racism within the schools. The, these black parents felt that these efforts were doing more harm than good for their uh, children's academic achievements. So my question is, were, are you aware of this article and did your reporting uncover the same facts? Thank you. So am I writing a book about Shaker Heights aware of an article that appeared in the New York Times about Shaker Heights? Yes, I am aware of it, yes. Um, um, the, I actually think that article was a little, um, I don't think it's, I don't think that there is evidence in that article or yet apparent that black families are leaving because of recent things such as detracking, although I feel like the article implied that there were. And I, the data that she relied on, which is actually the same data I cited to you guys um, a few minutes ago, that was um, you know, from before that. So um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know that we know that that's happening. But I mean, my answer is you know, similar to what I said to the the previous question, which is that yes, this is a long-term trend of, of um, higher income black families choosing other options. So, um, and yes, I do think it is something that needs to be paid attention to. To my right, good afternoon. Hi, Aisha Bell Hardaway, Shaker Heights since 1984. Um, I, uh, as you know, appear in your book a few times. I'm intrigued by the young lady, the junior from the high school who asked her question and I wanna put a finer point on it. I'd love to understand how it is that you justify telling the stories of black women when you don't have their permission and it's clear that you're still on your own personal journey of understanding racial inequity and injustice when the way that you position things in your book only contribute to that injustice and inequity? Well, I did not tell the stories of people without their permission. I, your story was in the Washington Post and I specifically asked you if it was okay to include it in the book and you said it was. So, and I did not, I, so that's my answer to the first part. I hope that this book does not contribute to injustice. And my, the response that I've gotten from many people indicates that they don't think it does. But people are free to disagree. 
and this book may not be for everyone, and that is, that is certainly people's choice of whether they would like to read it or not. We have time, I believe, for, we're gonna get a couple minutes, but at least one more. To my left, yes. Hi, my name is Baji Jenkins. I'm a sophomore at Shaker Heights High School. Um, you talk a lot about these like rose-colored glasses and all these opportunities that Shaker has. Is there any reason why like you wouldn't raise your kids in Shaker? No, I would. If we lived here, I definitely would. So, you know, no question. Yeah, you worked at the Washington Post for how many years now? Uh, five years at the Post. Five years at the Post. Covered the White House at one point. As well. uh, for the Wall Street for Journal. Wall Street but Journal. I've been in Washington for a very long time. Okay, yes. I do have time for one more very quick question. Do we have one more? Very quick one. You got to make it quick. You all good? All right, here we go. Um, my name's Jim Henry. I, I taught in the elementary grades for 29 years at Shaker and retired for about five. I just wanted to say that the expectations for excellence for teachers was always very high through my career, and the quest for racial equity was always on my mind. So thank you for the book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think that I, I mean, I think that that's an example of, of what's going on more, more broadly. I think there are a lot of people who would say the exact same thing who have contributed to the community over many years. In, in wrapping up, and you've touched on this several times, but at the end of the day, what do you want the reader, whoever that reader is, to take away from this book? Um, I hope that they will see that this is a, this is requires a lot of this is a, these are difficult problems that are worth taking on and worth exploring and and thinking through how to how to tackle and um, and take something from the stories of the people who have. What's more fun doing what you're doing today, covering the White House, doing those things? What would how would you describe that as a professional journalist? Well, you know, covering the White House or covering presidential politics, which I did for many years, um, was in some ways more fun, I guess, because there's something kind of thrilling about being at the center of the story in, you know, flying on Air Force One, stuff like that. But um, I actually feel like what I'm doing now is more satisfying. Um, it feels like a place where I can make more of a um, contribution and um, a chance to go deeper into these stories. And again, welcome home. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Laura Meckler, for joining us at the City Club today. Forums like this are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. Today's forum is part of the City Club's Education and Innovation Series, sponsored by Nordson. 35 years at Nordson? 25. 25. I, okay. All right. I thought you said 35. Uh, I'm sorry. 25 years. Uh, it is also part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation Series, presented in collaboration with Cuyahoga County Arts and Culture and Cuyahoga County Public Library. The City Club would like to welcome students joining us from Shaker Heights High School, as well as guests at the tables hosted by the Cleveland Clinic, Cuyahoga Community College, Nordson, and the Shaker Schools Foundation. Once again, thank you all for being here today. Be sure to join the City Club tomorrow, Friday, October 6th, for a broadcast live on 89.7 WKSU at the Futureland Conference. Film director Blitz Bazawule will talk about his upcoming movie. It is a musical reimagining of The Color Purple. I saw the trailer for this. It looks really good. Produced by Oprah, that'd be Winfrey, Steven Spielberg, and Quincy Jones. You can learn more about this forum and others at cityclub.org. 
Thank you once again, Laura Meckler, for being here today. And thank you, members of Friends of the City Club, for coming out. This forum is now adjourned. <laughs> thank you very much. You were great. <laughs> yeah, you were great. You had for information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.